Section number 30 of Canada, the Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, the Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott from 1763 to 1812, Part 1. Quebec has fallen. As jackals gather to feast on the carcasses of the dead lion, so rallies a rabble of adventurers on the trail of the victorious army. Settlers, traders, teamsters, riffraff, soldiers of fortune, stampede to Montreal and Quebec as to a new gold field. When Major Robert Rogers, the English forest ranger, proceeds up the lakes to take over the western fur posts, Presque Isle, Detroit, Michilmackinac, he is followed by hosts of adventurers looking for swift way to fortune, by either the fur trade or by picking the bones of the dead lion. Major Rogers, beating up Lake Ontario and Lake Erie, with two hundred bushwhackers, pausing in camp near modern Sandusky, meets the renowned Ottawa warrior Pontenac, who had fought with the French against Braddock, and now wants to know in voice of thunder what all this talk about the French being conquered means. How dare the French, because they have proved paltroons, deed away the Indian lands of Canada? How dare Rogers, the white chief of the English rangers come here with his pale-faced warriors to Pontenac's land. How Rogers answered the veteran red-skinned warrior is not told. All that is known is the French gave up their western furs with bad grace, and the English commandants forgot to appease the wound to the Indians' pride by the customary gifts over solemn powwow. At Detroit and Michilmackinac, the French quietly withdrew from the palisades and built their whitewashed cottages outside the limits of the fort. Twenty-five hundred French habitants there are at Detroit. If the four or five hundred English adventurers who swarmed to Canada on the heels of the English army thought to batten on the sixty thousand defeated French inhabitants, far otherwise thought and decreed the English generals, Sir Geoffrey Amherst and Murray, who succeeded him. You will observe that the French are British subjects as much as we are, and treat them accordingly, ruled Amherst and General Murray, who practically became the first governor of Canada on Amherst's withdrawal, at once set in himself to establish justice. No more forced labor, no more carry-on birds of the official classes like Bigot, fattening on the poor habitants. British government in Canada for the next few years is known as the period of military rule. At Quebec, at Three Rivers, at Montreal, the commanding officers established martial law with bi-weekly courts, and in the parishes the local French officers or seigneurs are authorized to hear civil cases. 
By the terms of surrender the people have been guaranteed their religious liberty, and the Treaty of Paris, which cedes all Canada to England in 1763, repeats this guarantee, though it leaves a thorn of trouble in the flesh of England by reserving to France, for the benefit of the Grand Banks fishermen, the islands of St. Pierre and Miquelon, as well as shore rights of fishing on the west coast of Newfoundland. Also the proprietary rights of Jesuits, Sulpinians, Franciscans, are to remain in abeyance for the pleasure of the English crown. The rights of the sisterhoods are at once confirmed. One of General Murray's first acts as governor is to convey gentle hint to the Abbey Le Lotre, now released from prison and come back to Canada, that his absence will be appreciated by the government. Within a few years there are five hundred English residents in Montreal and Quebec, and now trouble begins for the government. That wrangle between English and French, between Protestant and Catholic, which is to go on for a hundred years and retard Canada's progress by a century. Being British-born subjects, the few hundred demand that the governor call an assembly, an elective assembly, but by the laws of England, Roman Catholics must abjure their religion before they can take office, and by the Treaty of Paris, the Catholics of Canada have been guaranteed the freedom of their religion. To grant an elective assembly now would mean that the representatives of the five hundred English traders would rule over seventy thousand French. When accusing the French Catholics of Quebec of remaining a solitary so that they may wield the balance of power, it is well to remember how and when the quarrel began. Murray sides with the French and stands like a rock for their right. He will have no elective assembly under present conditions, and he puts summary stop to the business English magistrates and English bailiffs have hatched against the rights of the habitant, of seizing lands for debt at a time when money is scarce, summoning the debtor simultaneously to two different courts, then charging such outrageous fees that the debtor's land is sold for the fees to be brought in by the rascal ring who have arranged the plot. Ordinances are still proclaimed in primitive fashion by the crier going through the streets, shouting the laws to beat of drum. But as the crier shouts in English, the habitants know no more of the laws than if he shouted in Greek. As Murray opposes the clamor of the English minority, the English petitioned the home government for Murray's recall. In the light of the fact there were no schools at all in Canada except the Catholic seminaries, and that of the five hundred English residents, only two hundred had permanent homes in Montreal and Quebec, it is rather instructive to read, as one of the grievances of the English minority, that the only teachers in Canada were Catholics. The governor generalship is offered to Chatham, the great statesman, at five thousand pounds a year. Chatham refusing the position, there comes in 1768 as governor, 
at twelve hundred pounds a year sir guy carleton fellow soldier and friend of wolfe in the great war who follows in murray's footsteps stands like a rock for the rights of the french orders debtors released from jail fees reduced and a stoppage of force land sales bitter is the disappointment to the land jobbers who had looked for a partisan in carleton doubly bitter for carleton goes one better than murray for years the french government had issued paper money in quebec at the conquest seventeen million of these worthless government promissory notes were outstanding in the hands of the habitants knowing that the paper money is to be redeemed by the english government english jobbers are now busy buying up the paper among the poor french at fifteen cents on the dollar carleton sends the town crier from parish to parish warning the habitants to hold their money and register the amounts with the magistrates till the whole matter can be arranged between england and france the first newspaper is established now in quebec the quebec gazette printed in both english and french also the first trouble now arises from having ceded france the two tiny islands south of newfoundland st pierre and miquelon by english navigation laws all trade must be in english ships good the smugglers slip into st pierre with a cargo by night a ship with a white sail slips out of st pierre with that cargo at gaspe the sail of that ship is red at saguenay it is yellow at quebec it is perhaps brown ostensibly the ship is a fishing smack but it leaves other cargo than fish at the habitant hamlets of the st lawrence and the smuggling from st pierre that began in carleton's time is continued to-day in the very same way and guy carleton though he is an englishman and owes his appointment to the complaints of the english minority against murray remains absolutely impartial good reason for the wisdom of his policy there are rumblings from the new england colonies that forewarn the coming earthquake for years friction has been growing between the mother country and the colonies the story of the revolution does not belong to the story of canada for years far-sighted statesmen have predicted that the minute new england ceased to fear new france ceased to need england's protection that minute the growing friction would flame in open war carleton foresaw that to pander to the english minority would sacrifice the loyalty of the french thus he reported to the home government and the quebec act of seventeen seventy four came to relief of the french by it canada's boundaries were extended across the region of the ohio to the mississippi french laws were restored in all civil actions english law was to rule in criminal cases which meant trial by jury the french are relieved from oaths of offices and enabled to serve on the jury also the catholic clergy is entitled to collect its usual tithe of one twenty-six from the catholics an elective assembly is refused for reasons that are plain 
but a legislative council is granted to be appointed by the crown for the expense of the government a slight tax is levied on liquor but as the st pierre smuggling is now flourishing the tax does not begin to meet the cost of government and the difference is paid from the imperial treasury however badly the imperial government blundered with the new england colonies her treatment of quebec was an object lesson in colonizing to the world had she treated her new england colonies half as justly as she treated quebec British America might today extend to Mexico. Had she treated Quebec half as unjustly as she treated her own offspring of New England, the United States might today extend to the Arctic Circle. The man who saved Canada to England, in the first place by wisdom, in the second place by war, was Sir Guy Carleton. While the English and French, Protestant and Catholic, wrangle for power in quebec their rages on the frontier one of the most devastating indian wars known to american history not for nothing had pontenet drawn himself to his full height and defied major rogers down on lake erie from tribe to tribe the light couriers ran naked but for the breechcloth painted as for war carrying in one hand the tomahawk dipped in blood, in the other the wampum belt of purple, typifying war. The French had deeded away the Indian lands to the English. The news ran like wildfire, ran by moccasin telegram from Montreal up Ottawa River to Michamekinac, from Niagara westward to Detroit and southward to Presque Isle, and all that chain of forts leading southwestward to the mississippi was it a conspiracy of pontiac as it had been called hardly it was more one of those general movements of unrest or discontent of misunderstanding that but awaits the appearance of a brave leader to become a torrent of destruction pontiac the ottawa chief was such a leader and his standard rallied indians from virginia from the mississippi from lake superior of the universal unrest among the indians the english were not ignorant but they failed to realize its significance failed too to realize that the french fur traders cast out of the western forts and now roaming the wilds fanned the flame gave presents of gunpowder and firearms to the savages and egged the hostiles on against the new possessors of canada in order to divert the fur trade to french traders still in louisiana down at miami southwest of lake erie ensign holmes hears in march of seventeen sixty three that the war belt has been carried to the illinois up at detroit in may pontenac is camped on the east side of the river with eight hundred hunters daily the french farmers who supply the fort with provisions carry word to major gladwin that the indians are acting strangely holding long and secret powwow borrowing fowls to saw off the barrels of their muskets short a frenchwoman 
who has visited the Indians across the river for a supply of maple sugar, comes to Gladwin on May 5th with the same story. From 800, the Indians increased to 2,000. Old Catherine, a toothless squaw, comes shaking as with the palsy to the fort, and with mumbling words warns Gladwin to beware, beware. So does a young girl whose fine eyes have caught the fancy of Gladwin himself. Breaking out with bitter weeping, she covers her head with her shawl and bids her white lover have a care how he meets Pontiac in council. Gladwin himself was a seasoned campaigner who had escaped the hurricane of death with Braddock and had also served under Amherst at Montreal. In his fort are 120 soldiers and 40 traders. At the wharf lie two armed schooners, Beaver and Gladwin. When Pontiac comes with his 60 warriors, Gladwin is ready for him. In the council house the warriors seat themselves, weapons concealed under blankets. But when Pontiac raises the wampum belt that was to be the signal for the massacre to begin, Major Gladwin, never moving his light blue eyes from the snaky gleam of the Indian, waves his hand, and at the motion there is a roll of drums, a grounding of the sentry's arms, trampling of soldiers outside, a rush as the white men marching. Pontiac is dumbfounded and departs without giving the signal. Back in his cabin of rushes, across the river he rages like a maniac and buries a tomahawk in the skull of the old squaw catherine monday may ninth at ten o'clock he comes again followed by a rabble of hunters the gates are shut in his face he shouts for an admittance the sentry opens the wicket and in traitor's vernacular bids him go about his business there is a wild war yell the siege of Detroit begins. The story of that siege would fill volumes. For fifteen months it lasted, the French remaining neutral, selling provisions to both sides. Gladwin defiant inside his palisades, the Indians persistent as enraged hornets. The two English officers who have been out hunting are waylaid, murdered, skinned, the skin sewed into powder pouches, the bloody carcasses sent drifting down on the flood of the waters past the fort walls. Desperately in need of provisions from the French, Gladwin consents to temporary truce while Captain Campbell and others go out to parley with the Indians. Gladwin obtains cartloads of provisions during the parley, but Pontiac violates the honor of war by holding the messengers captive. Burning arrows are shot at the fort walls. Gladwin's men sally out by night, hack down the orchards that conceal the enemy, burn all outbuildings, and come back without losing a man. Nightly, too, lapping the canoe noiselessly across water with the palm of the hand, one of the French farmers comes with fresh provisions. Gladwin has sent a secret messenger with letter in his powder pouch, through the lines of the besiegers to Niagara for aid. May 30th, moving slowly, all sails out, 
the English flag flying from the prow, comes a convey of sailboats up the river. Cheer on cheer rent the air. The soldiers at watch in the galleries inside the palisades tossed their caps overhead, but as the ships come nearer, the whites were paralyzed with horror. Silence froze the cheer on the parted lips. Indian warriors manned the boats. The convey of ninety-six men had been cut to pieces, only a few soldiers escaping back to Niagara, a few coming on, compelled by the Indians to act as rowers. As the boats passed the fort, whoops of derision, wild war chants, eldritch screams, rose from the Indians. One desperate white captive rose like a flash from his place at the rowlocks, caught his Indian captor by the scruff of the neck, and threw him into the river. But the redskin grappled the other in a grip of death. Turning over and over, locked in each other's arms, the hate of the inferno in their faces, soldier and Indian swept down to watery death in the river tide. Taking advantage of the confusion, and under protection of the fort guns, one of the other captives sprang into the river and succeeded in swimming safely to the fort. Terrible was the news he brought. All the other forts south of Niagara, with the exception of Fort Pitt, Miami, St. Joseph, Presque Isle, lay in ashes. From some not a man had escaped to tell the story. That night it was a pitch-dark, soft, velvet, warm summer darkness. From the fort the soldiers could see the sixty captives from the convoy burning outside at the torture stakes. Then, as gray morning came, mangled corpses floated past on the river tide. June 18th another vessel glides up the river with help, but the garrison is afraid of a second disaster for eight hundred warriors have lain in ambush along the river. Gladwin orders a cannon fired. The boat fires back answer, but the wind falls and she is compelled to anchor for the night below the fort. Sixty soldiers armed to the teeth are on board, but the captain is determined to out-trick the Indians, and he permits only twelve of his men at a time on deck. Darkness has barely fallen on the river before the waters are alive with canoes, and naked warriors clamber to the decks like scrambling monkeys, so that they have outnumbered their prey that they forgot all caution. At the signal of a hammer, knock on deck, rap, 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 three times short and sharp, up swarm the soldiers from the hatchway. Fourteen Indians dropped on deck in as many seconds. Others were thrown on bayonet points into the river. It is said that after the fight of a few seconds on the ship, the decks looked like a butcher's shambles. Finally the schooner anchored at Detroit, to the immense relief of the beleaguered garrison. So elated were the English, one soldier dashed from a sally port and sculped a dying Indian in full view of both sides. Swift came Indian vengeance. Captain Campbell, the truce messenger, was hacked into pieces. By July 28th, 
Dazelle had come from Niagara with nearly two hundred men, including Rogers, the famous Indian fighter. Both Dazelle and Rogers are mad for a rush from the fort to deal with one crushing blow to the Indians. Here the one mistake of the siege was made. Gladwin was against all risk, for the Indians were now dropping off to the hunting field, but Dazelle and Rogers were for punishing them before they left. In the midst of a dense night fog, the English sallied from the fort at two o'clock on the 31st of July for Pontenac's main camp, about two miles up the river. Boats rowing upstream abreast the marchers. It was hot and sultry. The two hundred and fifty bushrangers marched in shirt sleeves, two abreast. A narrow footbridge led across a brook since known as Bloody Run, to cliffs behind which the Indians were entrenched. Along the trail were the whitewashed cottages of the French farmers, who stared from their windows in their nightcaps, amazed beyond speech at the rashness of the English. On a smaller scale it was the repetition of Braddock's defeat on the Ohio. Indians lay in ambush behind every house, every shrub in the long grass. They only waited till Dazelle's men had crossed the bridge and were charging the hill at a run. Then the war-whoop shrilled both to fore and to rear. The Indians doubled up on their trapped foe from both sides. Roger's rangers dashed for hiding in a house. The drum beat retreat. Under cover of Roger's shots from one side, Shots from the boats on the other, Dazelle's men escaped at a panic run back over the trail with a loss of some sixty dead. In September came more ships with more men, again to be ambushed at the Narrows, and again to reach Detroit, as the old record says, bloody as a butcher's shop. So the siege dragged on for more than a year at Detroit. Winter witnessed a slight truce to fighting, for starvation drove the Indians to the hunting field. But May saw Pontenac again encamped under the walls of Detroit, till word came from the French on the lower Mississippi in October, definitely and for all, they would not join the Indians. Then Pontenac knew his cause was lost. End of section 30. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.